Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Responsible Entrepreneur podcast, where we talk with entrepreneurs who are changing industries, various social systems, cultural paradigms, and how we govern ourselves. So they cover a broad range of ideas. And if you want to know more about that, you can check the Responsible Entrepreneur book, which talks about how I see people doing that from 15 entrepreneurs I have uh, worked with closely. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for joining me today. Would you please introduce yourself, the name of your business, and give us a little hint about the product offerings that you have so people know what we can look for in the markets for you? Sure. Hi, Carol. My name is Caroline Duell, and our company is called All Good. We're based in Morro Bay, California, and we make organic and botanical body care products and reef-friendly sunscreens. Wow. That's pretty exciting. And I... Uh, I know that you are a part of um, a community of people who are doing this kind of work. I think it'd be worth an additional sentence about your relationship to like OSC Squared and the kind of community you're trying to build around the work you're doing. Sure. Actually, that's a good point. Uh, the network of our of businesses, like-minded businesses that that we sort of walk among is very important to us. So I like to think of them as our sort of pillars of sustainability. And OSC2 is one of the groups where um, my husband and I are on the, the CEO networking group of OSC2 of the Rising Star members in the Bay Area. And that's basically just a network of businesses all working toward making a better world and being committed to sustainability. And that's an incredible resource. We're also a certified B Corporation and we're also members of 1% for the planet. That's great. I like to give plugs for all of those things. Um, I think taking this another layer deeper now to be able to describe your business in a bit more depth and particularly in every market, even when we're doing great things for the good of the world, there is a way we have to be unique and we have to bring something that comes from who you are. Could you say a little more about what your business does and what you think makes it unique in terms of what it offers, how it works, and even yeah. why that matters? Sure. So there's so many different levels this question can be answered, right? It's almost like the whenever you have an investment pitch, it's like, what makes you unique? But knowing the work that you do, Carol, and really digging deep into the, into the kind of the essence of that for us is that um, we're embedded in systems thinking as individuals, my husband and I, and as our business. And the way that we view the purpose of our business is that we would like to have people be inspired to live in balance with nature. And so when I speak to those aspects of what matters to us, it, it, you know, it doesn't say anything about the fact that we make a healing salve or that we grow our own herbs or that our products are incredibly effective as sunscreen in the sun, which are all also true. But those deeper layers, I think, are the piece that really support us through and through and, and make us who we are as individuals. Because in a way, the products that we sell are simply a vehicle for us to be able to um, connect with individuals and to collect with, connect with a larger community on this concept of people being inspired to live in balance with nature. So for us, it's that interface and it's that, it's that delicate line between humans and their surroundings that we think needs to be blurred so that humans are considered a part of nature and that we act as if the impacts that we have on our surroundings and that our surroundings have on us are kind of the most important thing happening in the world. So you triggered me thinking about another question here when you said, you know, you have a sunscreen that's very, very effective. I think 
knowing why that matters, because already you're doing something good with the way you make it. Why does it matter that it also is a good quality product? Is that a part of the ethic and how you work? Well, I mean, it simply wouldn't work if we made a sunscreen that people got burned from um, and put it on, right? So right. that's 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 the basic tenet of it. But ultimately, sunscreens are are good are a good way to think about this whole concept because we first started making them in two thousand nine. We've been in business for thirteen years, so since two thousand six. And my goal out of the gate was to basically. Uh, replace every all the chemicals in people's travel kits. You know, I wanted out with the chemicals, in with the organic, botanical, agricultural ones. And so sunscreen was a natural progression. We started making it in 2009, and I didn't even really understand how much of a negative impact sunscreens were having on the world. I knew a bit about it, but I really kind of remained agnostic and tried to kind of play the sidelines on it. But the more I dug into it and, you know, when you start getting involved in something as a company, ultimately that issue starts to surface and become more right in front of everyone's face. Um, I learned so much. And what I learned is that chemical sunscreens are like the bane of our existence. They are, there are about 12 active chemicals out there that are actually causing DNA mutation, endocrine oh. disruption, bleaching, and ultimately death, death in coral reefs. And coral reefs are animals humans are animals and guess what it has the same impact on us as humans so when i say that we make an effective sunscreen product and why that matters um you know on the on the more peripheral perspective or the fun side of it is like i want people to be out in the sun having fun um and so if they want to they want and need to protect themselves without a hat they want to wear something on their skin that actually acts as a uv blocker then that's the product that we provide and then the secondary impact, which has actually become the most important part, is that they can put something on their skin that they know is not going to pollute themselves or pollute the aquatic systems that they're inevitably going to be interacting with, whether it's you're on the land and you take a shower and then guess where that water goes after it goes mm -hmm. down the drain of the shower, or you're actually in a river and impacting the fish, or God forbid, they're actually snorkeling in areas of coral where the levels of toxicity are just astronomical. I know a little bit about the history of how All Good came into existence, but I think it's a great story and it helps, I think, specify a bit more of the uniqueness. So would you tell all our my listeners about the history of you coming to existence and kind of the meaning that was causing you to evolve the methods you had as you went along? You started that with sunscreen, but Sure. Yeah. So, so the roots of our business are that um, I was living on a farm in Northwest, um, in West Marin County, Northwest of San Francisco with Ryan, my husband in the late nineties. And um, he's, he's been a farmer all along. We can talk about that. But um, ultimately on that farm, I was invited by the owner who's an incredibly wonderful woman um, she's our, she's our California mama, grandmama, Diane Matthew, who owns Mount Barnaby farm in West Marin. And she asked me to install an herb garden because, um, they were farming away, working really hard. And, and that was an expertise that I had. So I, I started an herb garden and I started to watch the plants that all worked well together in different areas. And I planted it by modality. So I did a little headache section and a belly section and a stress section and a, a skin section. And in the skin section, um, the plants that were just completely thriving together were the ones that I chose to create a salve with. 
And so it was calendula, comfrey, yarrow, lavender, and plantain. And they just harmonized together in the soil. And so I had this theory that they would also do really well in a salve. And it's also, a, those are also very common plants. For each of them have their specific purposes for skin and for healing. So I made a salve out of it and it was a hobby. Um, nothing more than that. I called it all good goop uh, for a number of reasons. And um, I was working at, at the time, in addition to working on that farm, I was also practicing massage therapy. We had just gone to massage school together. That was why Ryan and I came to California actually. Um, and then I had a job guiding climbing trips in the Sierras. And so the combination of teaching climbing and doing massage was kind of a, a r ridiculous thing to try to do <laughs> with a pair of hands, the same pair of hands. So it was really self-serving. I made that stuff for myself so I could heal my hands between climbing and doing massage. And then I started giving it away to people. I gave it away to friends and family and clients. And it was really fun on climbing trips to see people who were trying crack climbing for the first time and get uh, little gobies and cuts on their hands. And then by the third day of the trip, they'd be back and able to able to climb again with having using a healing salve and then we sold it at farmers markets local right in san geronimo our little local farmers market and um i just kind of thought that was cool but i had no interest in business and no interest in turning it into a company at all uh and then we moved from west marin and with a couple of friends we bought a property down in on the central coast of california and this is a bit relevant because um, it's actually what stopped me from making salve. I was like, okay, that was fun. That was good. But now I'm onto this new project, which was that we didn't just buy a farm and go for it. We bought a junkyard. We bought a methamphetamine attic, hell's angel hideout junkyard. Um, we got rid of 40 cars, countless containers of metal and um you can imagine the things that we found on this place that had just been treated like crap for at least 20 years so i just said forget it i can't make any more salve i'm focused on this big project but then i started getting calls from people um climbing partners people who had gone to the farmer's market and started using my all good goop for all these really serious things that they were really relying on it for and um and so I'm, I tend to be very responsive. I, I tend to um, work well when people ask me for things I, I, like to, I like to accommodate. So I sent them more jars of salve and sometimes I would just send it in mason jars. And then eventually I realized it was where the momentum was going and so I followed it and I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll start a business. And so that's how it started and it wasn't, you know, I think that I have so much respect for uh, business owners and entrepreneurs who just come out with these ideas and then they follow the ideas and then they test them and they work on them forever and then make them happen. Mine was the complete opposite. You know, I always say like, I didn't start the business. The business started me because I wasn't <laughs> in it to win it. I didn't have this big idea that was going to solve the problem of, you know, of the cords that, you know, attaching cords to phones. Like I didn't come up with the cordless phone. I didn't come up with something that like revolutionized the world. Um, it was simply that um, I was connected to people from a perspective of healing and healing is what matters to me on every level, whether it's healing the land or healing individuals and healing ourselves. And so I just basically listened and followed and that's what turned into a business. Wow. 
that's an amazing story. And I know you've told me part of that story before, but boy, it, to the going in and out, uh, the decision first, you just buy a piece of land and then discover what that really means. You know, okay, we're going to grow something. Oh, well, no, first we're going to clean up a, a toxic yeah. waste site. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm sure influenced you also in many ways, which I wish we had time to go in through lots of depth, but I'd like to hear a little bit of Ryan's story feeding into this because clearly as you describe it you did it together but mm -hmm. can you talk just not only about Ryan's story a little bit but about how your two roles work together how do you because I have quite a few couples who run businesses who listen to my podcast and they always say ask any other couple how they make this work how they manage conflict how they make decisions um, so could you share a little Ryan's story and then a bit on how you make how you work together Sure. So Ryan's background is that um, in college, he studied plant and soil science. And his whole premise for doing that was that um, he initially believed um, when he started learning about the agricultural, the potential for an agricultural revolution, if you will, um, that farming was sort of the ticket to remove himself from this military industrial complex of disasters that has continued to befall our world. And um, the ticket out of that and the ticket to communicate the ability to be out of that to individuals um, is through uh, basically through permaculture, through farming and through self-reliance. Um, and so uh, out of college, he was just straight on the path to be a farmer forever, dig his toes and roots and self into the soil and have that be um, kind of his tool for the revolution, if you will. And then I think I kind of disrupted that <laughs> because we, we were really good friends in college. We both went to the University of Vermont together. Um, and that's where I had studied um, emergency medicine. I was working on an ambulance and then got into botanical medicine and wilderness guiding. And I was on the path to be a wilderness guide and he was on a path to be a farmer. And after four years of being really good friends, we looked at each other. We were like, actually, I think our life path is together. Um, mm. So, uh, and sparks started flying. So we had to kind of meet each other in the middle. And I don't know how you get a wilderness guide and a farmer to figure out how to do both, but that's what we recognized that we had to do. So um, when we came out to California, I, my, my plan was to study massage therapy and he, he joined and wanted to do the same thing, but he knew that no matter what, he needed to find a farm and he needed to work on a farm. So we literally, uh, the way that we did that was kind of funny, actually. When we first landed in West Marin, we found out in the town of Woodacre that there was a little community fair going on. So we had rented this house. And when he found out there was a community fair, he said, that's where I'm going to find my farm. And that's where I'm going to find my farmer. So we went and picked our neighbor's apples trees and, uh, and made an applesauce that night. And the next day went and sold it at, at this community center thing <laughs> as if we were a part of the community. We literally had just moved there two days before. And, uh, and sure enough, at that event, we found the farm that we lived and worked on for the next five years. Um, and so when we bought this property, his, it was really his vision. I was, I was like, all right, we did this farming thing in West Marin. Now we can get our VW and go from Joshua Tree to Yosemite and just travel and climb. Um, and he was like, no, are you kidding me? We need to sequester carbon and grow soil and grow farmers and this is what we're doing. And so uh, once again, I, I resisted and, and found my way to keep climbing. But at the same time, he knew that he needed to purchase a farm. And um, 
when we were living in West Marin, we were really fortunate. But when we started looking at real estate property, we realized oh. we were com- competing with George Lucas for land. Yeah. And uh, that just was not a reality. So this place came to us through two good friends of his from college. And um, they had similar ideas. One is a natural builder. Um, and the other one was really into education. And so um, we knew that if we all went in on it together, that we could detoxify the land and, and essentially heal it. Um, we planted carrots to pull heavy metals out of the soil and immediately engaged in um, natural building projects and started hosting permaculture design courses and woofers as soon as we could. So all of that really folds into who Ryan is and how he is so connected to the land and connected to farming. Um, and then uh, as we progressed, um, he started selling, he started doing additional things to farming because I think if anybody can crack the economic nut of how to actually make farming economically viable and wildland, sustainable, organic, regenerative farming economically viable, I think that's going to, that's a major conversation that should never be ignored. Um, and so economically he was challenged by the income he was getting from, from the farming that he was doing. And so he started brokering organic cheese and he was bringing organic and sustainable cheese from Vermont out to California. And we each had offices on opposite sides of our house. And I walked into the kitchen to make a cup of tea and I was listening to talk, listening to him on the phone, talking to a broker about some sort of logistical shipping something. And he got off the phone and I was like, I literally just had the same conversation. We should be doing this together. And he was like, yeah, we should. (laughs) So that was it. He started selling, um, he started doing sales for for us in 2008. And uh, I had one other employee at the time. So it was the three of us. And, um, And the thing that was interesting is when we started having that idea, we'd already done so many endeavors together. I mean, from selling applesauce at a community fair to um, we've done so many things. We went to South America and bought, you know, uh, duffels full of textiles and sold them at festivals all summer. So like we'd done those things together, but we had never actually decided to go into a longer term business. And I remember uh, that night having a conversation and looking each other in the eyes and saying, so let's do this, but no matter what, our relationship comes first. Hmm. So if anything goes down with the business or if anything gets weird or we have challenges, our relationship is takes precedent over that. And I think that that was the most important thing in terms of us working together because we recognized that our relationship needed to be the priority. And and then within that, we created very clear roles. So we're very respectful of each other's roles and of the boundaries that we play and who makes the decisions in that area so that we don't um, cross over. And um, and then we also gave each other um, the the permission to say, now is not the time. So if at night we're sitting in the hot tub and one person wants to talk about, you know, some issues with a distributor or an account or anything like that, and the other one's like, I just can't do it right now, then conversation over. And we set that from the beginning as well so that we can um, we can have the boundaries we need to. And, and um, frankly, it's worked out amazingly. I couldn't imagine doing it without him. So... It's been really so, fun. It, one of the things you you said, which I'm just, I want to double check and then do a little extension on it, is you clearly divided um, roles, which sounds. 
to me like you have boundaries about who makes this decision, who doesn't. And yet when I hear the hot tub and I get that picture, I think of you as thinking partners across those boundaries. Is that a good description or how does, like if a big gnarly decision crosses over your two roles, how do you engage in building something that works for the business as a whole and the people you serve? Right. So I think that's a great description of it. We're absolutely thinking partners. But if we have to make a decision about how, you know, how much of a discount to give a certain chain customer, I have no opinion on that. Right. That's not my deal. And if we have um, a banking relationship that has to be pursued or, or an investment relationship or an HR thing, or, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to get involved in that. So in that sense, we have our, we have our different areas, but of course they overlap and we all wear a million hats and we all share each other's jobs. Um, but ultimately when it comes down to it, we know who's responsible for specific things. And then, um, you know, related to how to get through a big gnarly decision, ultimately it's not just us. We we're very clear about, um, our purpose and, and we bring it back to our core values as a company. And so we have the ability to, um, to dialogue as much as we need to. And we're very good at, at discourse and, um, and having, you know, I think that actually, if I could just tie it into your work a little bit, Carol, having that ability to uh, have self-awareness, kind of looking at ourselves from above while we're having the conversation, that's something that Ryan and I have always worked toward in our own practices. And so when we bring that into business and bring that into working together, um, it leaves the ego and the fear and the competition at the door. So I often recommend it. I'm, I'm just going to give a name to some of what you're doing and see if this fits, but it's partly to help other people be able to see what you're doing. I describe that the, when you have partners, whether those are co-founders that are related through marriage or a family, you need some kind of overarching managing principles. And they're managing principles at different levels. One is, who are we in the world and what are the trade-offs we will not make? What are the opportunities we are really pursuing? And so those are articulated. They're not just kind of like understood. It's like you've talked about them. You've made them really clear. And then the next level is the internal managing principles about how we decide what's important and, and what we work on inside. And it sounds like from the time, almost in some ways, you being friends with one another before you were life partners, established many of what those were, and then you've articulated them since. Is that feel true? And could you maybe articulate one of those kind of principles, which would help other people see how to do that? Sure. Yeah, there's a lot in there, but I think you're right. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an ever evolving path, right? Like we might not have, have had that complete awareness of, of how to identify them. Um, but, um, but then along the way, they, they grow their own terms or definitions. And so, yeah, I, I like the way that you described it. Um, and I think that's very true. Um, yeah, I can share one that I really like a lot. And that is um, an internal um, principle of, um, of, oh, well, it's two of them, but I'll, but I'll talk about them at the same time. The concepts of thoughtful consideration and communication. And so for communication, Ryan and I have a friend who's been a mentor of his, his who who talks about how the English language is really an inhibition of our ability to really communicate because 
um, they, we don't have definitions for certain words and then everybody goes sideways, right? From there, when you don't have a definition, everybody creates their own and then we live based on those assumptions. So Ryan and I, in, in thinking through communication, and this actually really does play out in our business as well, is uh, my favorite quote is, the meaning of what you say is determined by the response you get um, relative to communication. So, you know, if, if, if somebody comes in and says, but I told them that, and the person who was told said, like, I didn't hear it that way. Well, frankly, there's, there's a give and take, but it's ultimately the response of the communicator to communicate something to somebody in a way that it's heard. So um, that's a big one. I think that's a really big one because it, uh, it requires a level of self-awareness about how somebody's receiving something, and it requires to actually, us to actually pay attention you know, to like be kind of aware of how something might be received. Um, so I think that's a big one. And then thoughtful consideration is a, is a really strong one for me. Uh, this goes back to uh, the, the Vedas, really, the, the yoga um, principle of ahimsa, of nonviolence or um, um, treating others with respect. And, and uh, in Sanskrit, uh, is no himsa harm, right? So doing no harm and translating that into thoughtful consider, consideration is just, once again, it goes back to that communication of just having self-awareness about how we're engaging and how we're how what we're doing is impacting others without having an assumption about it, but just an awareness about it. Um, and then that also trickles down and translates into everything we do. I mean, if you look at ahimsa, uh, no harm, and flip that on its head, that's all good. And it's not meant to be um, uh, prescriptive or some sort of like, you know, huge ideology. It's just very simple of like, Let's not be harmful. So let's not be harmful in the products that we're making, in the way that we're doing them, in the way we're running our business, um, in the way we're engaging. And for all of our stakeholders involved, it, it plays a part. So I think that comes from the core and then emanates out. Those are beautiful. Absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm resonating with them the way uh, I talked about them in my most, well, not my most recent book, but the one called The Regenerative Business, where I said there are three core human capacities that if they are developed, they make society and our relationship to ecosystems healthy. And if they're not, we undermine each other. And one is locus of control, <clears throat> which is I accept that whatever I do, whatever I create in the world, I take responsibility for. That doesn't mean I take responsibility for if they do something crazy, but if I'm going to react, I have to keep owning up to where the responsibility starts and never blame, victim, all the other things. And you've got that in the meaning of what you say is determined by the response you get, but it also includes the second one that I have, which is external considering which I learned it's a philosophical idea, right? That comes out of the Sufis work. So going back to another tradition, if uh -huh. I can move from just being kind to people all the way to caring about their world and their outcomes and the effect I have on them and make choices about that, you can create a very different relationship. But as you say, you have to be able to watch all that. And I like, Oh my goodness, that in your first one, both of those are there at the same time. And so oh, cool. These yeah. are these are great. I'm going to tell your story and use these examples at some point. They're lovely. Thank um, you. So uh, I can hear, even though you're young and have done an amazing amount, 
I feel like you're on your way to something also. And I keep trying to figure out what is that? Where are, do you have, I don't know whether it's business strategy or whether it, you mentioned earlier, like healing, is there some um, kind of overarching direction that you hold either for you or for the business or for the two of you that drives you? And then the question that goes with that are what challenges are there? on the way from here through there, on the way to something else, probably. Am I making some sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, um, the interesting part about how our business started without the idea of having a business, it kind of leaves one potentially directionless along the way, right? Because it's yeah. not usually, usually people that have that concept of the Eureka idea and then they have the end game in mind already. Well, that's not us. Um, it's more that, for me, I think when I'm challenged with something or when I see that there's a problem or problems to be solved, I don't really want to let go until at least there's some sort of um, resolve or some sort of you know sense of um, sense of a of a new level of uh, of a playing field where that we get to. Um, but I think that um, you know for for us right now. Um, looking ahead is really about um, continuing to be on the cutting edge of new ideas. And, um, and really, I love this idea. I actually, I just led a panel at the 1% for the Planet Global Summit last week on activism and advocacy in business. And in reflecting on how we were all going to engage on the panel, I think one of the most kind of exciting things that came to my mind was that we really are in a new age. We're in a new era of, of corporate activism. I mean, all the way up until fairly recently, we've been on the other side of it where we're individuals fighting against companies for their pollution and their mistreatment and all of the things that they're doing just to, to keep their bottom line growing, right? But now it's like you're seeing this emergence of all these companies who are willing to take a stand and willing to be the face of the changing the world for the better, for uh, coming up with resilient solutions for climate change and how we are actually going to play a role in that and how we take responsibility for that. So that just keeps me going. I mean, right there to be able to engage with incredibly intelligent people in this community that we referred to earlier and in the work that you're doing, Carol, to push the envelope on that and to actually be able to get to a place where we see results. Um, I mean, that is like, mm. that to me is, that's enough to keep me going. And then, you know, I see my employees engaged and, and, uh, being able to provide opportunities for them and, and, uh, and continue to, in their lives, grow and prosper is, is also really exciting. Um, and then, you know, the concept of it on our end as a business, the role that I, I believe we can play is something that um, I've been so inspired by so many of the companies that you work with. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give credit right now to Guayaki. Uh, those guys just completely blow my mind. They're the Yerba Mate company and, and the things that they do and, and the ways that they think about things and systems. And I learned a long time from them that, um, that they, a long time ago from them, that from the beginning of their business, they wanted market-driven restoration. So they wanted like every mate bottle to restore acres of rainforest in South America. So I've been really riffing on that for the past 
12 years and um, and thinking for us our role is market driven regeneration so in the same way that they're doing that you know in in South America that for us for anybody that buys one of our products I want it to be serving them as an individual of course and then be preventing pollution on coral reefs or on their bodies and on the um, aquatic systems and then simultaneously by the very ingredients in that product be regenerating soil so that there's just this continuum of um, positive results from the um, simple you know act of choosing one product over another yeah you know I, <clears throat> you're talking about businesses moving toward a new i think a new level almost of advocacy and activism mm -hmm. uh, and intensity and i've just was last week or was earlier this week on a call with david levine and jeffrey hollander who are regenerating the american sustainable business council because mm -hmm. they're so aware of the need to be affecting policy as well as own internal practices and we were looking at what's the essence of the founding because they are the two founders and what is that bringing to it? And I got so excited listening to the two of them about what is possible uh, with businesses stepping collectively in to try and affect those things. And so you're inspiring me again. I love it. Um, it's amazing. I think, you know, I just want to say the B Corp movement has been so powerful in that. And, um, and it's just like, I, I mean, it, it's it's just so awesome and and that's yeah. exactly where it is we we did a uh, we just did a really deep dive um, session with 50 other b corp companies to basically look at what how we're going to address climate change and over two days we literally did the work to come up with the areas of focus and then a nine-month action plan on basically who's doing what to achieve X results on all these different areas that we identified as the important pieces of it. And uh, I mean, you can't get better than that. So it, to me, it just keeps my optimism yeah. uh, very lit up. And it's one of the reasons I put a B Corp story in every book I write, because so I do believe that the work that uh, is underway there is so important to keep that, those kind of questions being worked on. Well, I have uh, two last quick questions. One is you've referenced, um, and, and I'm so grateful that you're a part of my life now and a part of what we're doing. I'm wondering if there's anything particularly that um, you could share with people that you're discovering or you feel like that the regenerative work and that community that we are working together on is bringing, um, maybe as a way of helping people even understand what regeneration means and what it is in addition to sustainability? Sure. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I think you probably get this a lot, Carol, but there, there are definitely aspects of it that are so hard to articulate because it's visceral in some ways, the experience that, that we get from learning and trying the methodologies. And then, uh, at some point they, <laughs> at some point they make it into the frontal lobe so we can actually talk about them. Yep. Um, but that's, what's so profound about it. Uh, and I recognized even after our very first call, the next day we had a decision to make about a new product, um, that we were working on in the process of developing. And I found, I found myself checking in on, are these decisions that we're making based on this timeline and based on our challenges and based on all the external pressures, are these decisions purposeful or are we coming from a place of ego or fear? And um, that was the first lesson that we did was talking about that. And, 
and so I, I would say that's the first most pe- mo- kind of like you know the loudest piece that still rings with me from that first session is just being able to have um, a framework for considering uh, where decisions are coming from. So if they're coming from a place of purpose and, and understanding that the whole entire reason for that is to be a non-displaceable brand, but also that if we're rooted in our purpose and rooted in these ideas that are important to us, that we're not just going to sit on that vulnerable fringe of fear of like, how is this going to relate to our competitor who might get the product out first or we're going to win. And so we're going to do this because we're going to win. It's like, those are just like the, those are the, those are the easy table legs to knock down. Right. And, and so uh, that has been incredibly powerful. Um, And one of the reasons, one of the things I say to people is my work is not about giving you gatherings to generate additional good actions to take is to actually build the mind that is needed when you enter those, not to have the mechanical thoughts and to have the personal internal struggles and challenges and obstacles, because you have to work on all that and evolve you as a being and a mind beyond that before you can go off to a B Corp meeting and do all these wonderful things. And so I feel like there is work to do on the action and the advocacy and there's work to do on the mind and my work in the world is working on the mind. (laughs) Well, honestly, I think I completely agree with you. I think they can't, be without one another or they lack you know there's like something that just is missing there and so for us that's the other piece of it is just it's been very disruptive in a positive way we're in a lot of transitions and we could easily just be trying to uh, cling on to you know that if I if I if I think of it I the analogy I use a lot with this work Carol is like a river and if I were to just like cling on to the edge and hold on because that feels like the most concrete thing I can do, then the, you know, then we're not even on the journey because we're just clinging onto some root on the edge. But what it's felt like to me is, um, is kind of being in the middle of the rapids, but being on a kayak and feeling good, knowing that at any point something could go sideways. So I better be ready for it, but feeling comfortable in the, then the little bit of chaos, if you will. Well, I love your metaphors. They're, I think, very <laughs> apt. <laughs> and you are an incredibly articulate person. This has been a delightful, delightful conversation to not only understand how you work, but how you see the world. Do, I know that there are going to be people who want to know more about your products, more about you as people, and may have questions. What would you suggest about where they go to find you or to follow up? Sure. So uh, for our business, they can look at allgoodproducts.com is the website. And our social media handle is uh, at allgoodbrand on um, all, the, all those channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatnot. And then on our website, they can learn more about us and our farm where we source our ingredients, our family, of course, because they're a part of our business and all of the initiatives that we do along with our products. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Caroline, for joining me. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for the work you're doing. It's incredibly important and amazing. Thank you.